Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to take a look at the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 28th chapter, the 16th and 20th verses. This is the uh, the, end, the end of the of the Gospel of Matthew, so it it kind of sums up the whole uh, kerygma, the whole message of Matthew, encapsulates it, um, and and then it opens the future to the church. So let's see what this is now. The eleven disciples set out for Galilee to the mountain, where Jesus had arranged to meet them, and when they saw him, they fell down before him, though some hesitated. And this is kind of interesting, even after the 11, even after everything that they have been through, that they have been through, of course, the, uh, the, the public ministry of Jesus. They have been companions of his and friends of his. They have learned from him. Um, they have great admiration and respect for him. Um, they have endured the trauma of the passion and the crucifixion and the death of the Lord. And they have all been privy to the resurrection of the Lord. For no matter what kind of manifestation of the resurrection we find in the Gospels, and there are a variety of them, it's always the same. It's always emphasizing the reality of Jesus. And it's always um, emphasizing the incarnational continuation of Jesus after the resurrection. In every one of them, there's, uh, there's touching, there's eating with him, um, and, and there's uh, <clears throat> questions to him, and there's a mission that he gives them, and, uh, and he, opens their, he opens their minds to the scriptures, that everything that's said about him, all of these experiences in the gospel. And, uh, and yet here we find, when they saw him, they fell down before him, though some hesitated. So it tells us something about the struggle with faith. And, um, and, and I think that uh, oftentimes when we, take, when we take the Lord very seriously, when we take our faith very seriously, you know, there are some people who are terrified um, if, they, if they have doubts about something. And they're very worried that this is, you know, this is kind of a, a terminal situation for them in their relationship with the Lord, in their relationship with the heritage of their faith. But we see here in the Gospels that this is part of believing, that we ourselves, we, we can force faith, you know? We can kind of reconstruct our inner mind that we do not allow doubts to surface. But at the same time, when we look back here, and again, after everything they've been through, and, and Matthew specifies that these are the 11 disciples. Um, this, is not, this is not the larger crowd. This is not, you know, a group of people who have been following Jesus. This is the 11. And some hesitated. And when he, in fact, is right before them. Should we, therefore, be shocked when this kind of privilege for us is, is just not there, when sometimes we stumble, sometimes we wonder. 
Um, and, and I think, once again, we go back, and, and we'll, we'll talk about this in, in a little while, because this is a gospel that the Church uses for Trinity Sunday, and we're going to see the, the Trinitarian formula for baptism at the end of Matthew's gospel. But, but in, in the meantime, I think it's very important for us to realize that we have to recontextualize our understanding of the faith and in conformity with who we are as human persons and how we have been redeemed and whose image and likeness we are in. We understand, for instance, that in the Trinitarian God, the very essence of God's being is that he is interiorly relational. And, then, and that is how we have the three persons in one God, with a love that so far transcends our comprehension of it that it takes, it binds into one the three persons of the Trinity. That deep inside of ourselves is our interior reality. That is the definition of the human person. It isn't the old... <clears throat> rationalist definition, well, you know, man is a rational being, a rational animal, or something like that. All of those things are attributes of the human person. But the essence of the human person is in the image and the likeness of the divine, that they are essentially relational beings. And if we want to understand our relationship with Jesus Christ, our relationship with the Lord, the Most High God, then we have to understand we go through the phases of relationality that are proper to the limitations of our humanity. And that means even in the closest and the deepest relationship between two people, there are times of indifference and there are times of doubt and there are times of discouragement and there are times of hurt. There are all those kinds of things which in some way kind of interrupt the flow of the perfect of the perfection of the harmony between people in their relationship with one another. No matter how deep the love is, there are always glitches, there are always stumbles, there are always wonders, there are always these things about what if, what if, what if. And so we shouldn't be shocked if that happens to us in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, because well, the great initiator of the relationship is is certainly is certainly God is certainly the Lord Jesus, and that's even even defined um, in one of the very early councils of the church. Either um, I think it's the Council of Arles um, in in the sixth century that that the initiative of faith comes from God and not from ourselves. So this is this is kind of. So here, here we are now. Christ has initiated a relationship with us, and we are responding within the limitations of our own humanity. And no, and no matter how perfect our faith, and no matter how deep and strong that faith is, there are times when we wonder. There are times when we say, what if? There are times when our own inadequacy makes it impossible to fully embrace and fully receive the presence of the living God in our lives and in our midst. So we get a lesson then in the fragility of faith and the fragility of our humanity by understanding that the eleven who are given everything as far as reassurance of the presence of the Lord and the reality of the Lord, but even they hesitate. Then Jesus says to them, he came up and he spoke with them after they had seen him. And he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
And here we find this also in the gospel over and over again. Everything that I have, and we see this in John's gospel especially, everything that I have comes to me from the Father. All that I have is the Father's, and all that the Father is, I have. And then I send the Spirit, and he will... He will um, he he will bring you everything. He will take everything from me, and he we go on in that kind of in that kind of vein, to where Jesus is constantly interweaving and tying together the persons of the Trinity, by identifying them with each other, and yet at the same time maintaining their their separateness as as persons, as Son and Spirit and Father. And so when he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, this is a, this he, he's speaking in the same way that John speaks in his gospel about, um, you know, what the, everything I have comes from the Father. I say nothing but what the Father tells me to say. I do nothing but what the Father does, and so forth. And so when he speaks with all authority has been given to me, he's speaking in the name of the Trinity because he has already established the fact that everything he has comes from the Father. And so if all authority has been given to him, from whom has it been given? It has been given from the Father. And what is the, what is the realization of that in the, in the world? Um, the realization of that in the world is, of course, the Spirit. And so actually all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me is a Trinitarian formula of sorts in the Gospel. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all the commands that I gave you. Now, in the early church, in the very earliest days of the church, um, the Christians were baptized in the name of Jesus. But there was a variety of Judaic baptisms and in even um, in some way pagan baptisms in, in early Israel. And that in order to distinguish while baptism in the name of Jesus implies the baptism of the Trinity, that nevertheless for our sake and for the clarification that this is not a cult of personality but that this is a deep faith in a transcendent God, Jesus said, Jesus says, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, baptize them that way. Because that way this is not a cult of personality. That way this is not some kind of a, just an individualistic thing. This is not just the following of a prophet. This is initiation into the life of the living God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, who is triune. And basically what happens is, since we are ourselves essentially interiorly relational beings, that by drawing that natural created tendency into the Trinitarian um, reality of infinite love, that the human person then is enabled to realize within themselves that triune presence that Jesus speaks of his own ministry. And so baptism then takes that which has been given to us in creation, damaged by original sin. It is a restoration then of the authenticity and the, and the beginnings of human nature in the image and the likeness of the divine. So it restores to us the image and the likeness of the divine. And uh, we used to say in the old days, you know, that, well, what this does is it, it removes the black spot of original sin from our souls. Well, that became a little bit kind of too anthropomorphic, a little bit, a little bit too, too uh, mechanical, I guess. And it turned then into an initiation ceremony, basically. 
and people began to see it as an initiation ceremony that enabled them to to be um you know who the lord created them to be so baptism became then kind of an enabling sacrament in the in the popular mind and the result of it was there was there was a very positive obviously a very positive result of baptism for restored to the image and the likeness of the divine through the sacrament of baptism um <clears throat> then certainly that i mean that's just monumental in in what it means in the life of a human person. Um, at the same time, many people have begun to take it in the same way that being born into the blood of Abraham was taken in the Old Testament. They have seen it as entitlement rather than mission. And I think that we have to be extremely careful of that. Many people, you know, that baptism is the great sacrament of enabling, and therefore I am my own authority. Therefore I am my own, um, my own God, really. Um, and and we, we hear that all the time, and, and that's why you get a little bit uncomfortable with, with the great emphasis on baptism as kind of the, the enabling of the Christian. Not that it's not true, but that it is popularly oftentimes in turn interpreted again as an entitlement rather than as a mission and rather than as an identity of the human person. But Jesus here takes the opportunity to tell them to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Trinitarian formula of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to observe all the commandments that I gave you. Well, so Maybe we should just pause for a moment and take a look at the whole Trinitarian reality. And uh, it's not necessarily a very simple thing for us. I, I, I recall many, when I was first ordained, and for many years, it always seemed like an abstraction to me. And it did. And so you used to preach and say, well, you know, this is something we don't understand, but we accept and blah, blah, blah. And the interesting thing was is that one day a woman came up to me after Mass and said to me, um, Father, I'm really tired of that. Um, anyone who's married and has children has some kind of a sense of what it means, what the Trinity means. So duly humbled by that and, and rightly corrected in that, began then to look more deeply into, into the whole faith statement of, of the Trinitarian God and to see kind of what that means and to see why that is significant and why that is important to us. And we go back to one of the, and, and the woman was right in, a, in one sense, that you can go back and you can look at the, at the sacred scripture and, uh, and you can see, for instance, that um, it's important, especially from the book of Genesis, it's very important for us to have some sense of who God is in his, in his wholeness. Um, and we don't need to go into the, the, uh, the, the complicated, um, obscure web of Aristotelian metaphysics to do this. Um, we can go back to the book of Genesis and we can say, if we are made in the image and the likeness of the divine, then it behooves us, if we are to know who we are, to know what that is, who is the divine. And I know certainly in the Middle Ages it was fascinating because in the Middle Ages what they did 
They saw the revelation of the Trinitarian God. Some of them did the revelation of the Trinitarian God in the first couple verses of the book of Genesis, where it says in the beginning, God and uh, and and the the spirit of God hovered over the waters and God spoke a word and there was light. And John tells us in the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the word was the light of men, and so forth. So right in the very beginning, we learn that there is this this triune reality to the vine. It is God, it is spirit, it is word. And so we we know then that when Genesis comes to then it had established this principle in the very beginning, and then when it comes to the end of the story of creation of the world, and takes up the creation of the human person, then it says in the image and the likeness of the divine. Nowhere, nowhere else in Scripture is the word image used uh, positively, that it always is kind of a sign of idolatry. And um, because, um, again, in, in the Hebrew language, they didn't really have the facility to use abstract language. They could use allegorical language, but they couldn't use abstract language. And so they could never have an image because there was no way to distinguish the image from the reality. So that, um, and, and of course, the, the most famous Old Testament um, piece of this is the golden calf where they made the golden calf, and then they didn't say, this represents the God who led us out of it. No, they said, this is the God who led us out of Israel. That, that, it, what it, what it, that its existence was what it was. It did not represent anything. So that when we use that word then in the, in the book of Genesis, and we use it, um, we use it um, clearly and deliberately, and knowing the the uh, limitations of the language to express something that uh, that that says somehow there's a resemblance <clears throat> which isn't what it means it means in our own modern i suppose philosophical language or whatever we call it um it means actually that there is within the human person the very thing that makes them human is some kind of participation in the divine being and if we participate in the divine being in some way, the Eastern Church handles this actually a lot more gracefully than the Western Church does. And the Eastern Church speaks very freely about the divinization of the human person. Um, but we have a problem with that. And uh, our problem with that basically, once again, is conceptual and linguistic. That, uh, that w- we see it basically as um, creating... Uh, an enormous pantheon rather than an understanding of being taken into something. And so we we don't use the word very freely, and we have to be careful how we talk about it. Um, it's just another example of how language and culture kind of defines the way that we're able to, to discuss um, even the interpretation of Scripture. But the fact is, then, the fact is, is this, that if we participate in the divine being, then we participate in the whole divine being, and in that participation of the whole divine being, and if the whole divine being is essentially interior relational, then that becomes the core, the essence of the identity of the human person. So, if we know, if we, if we can say, well, the Trinity is, as I said so often, the Trinity is just an abstraction we don't understand, that's not true. That in our own humanity, we have the capacity to grasp in some oblique sort of way 
um, something of the essence of the divine and therefore something of the meaning and the structure of our whole personality, of our whole life. So that we move then, when, when Jesus says, baptize him in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, once again, this in the name of, that's, that's another connection. Because in Hebrew, the name and the person were the same thing. You couldn't, dis, you couldn't distinguish between a person's name and the person. That's why naming a child was so incredibly important. Why the angel went to great extent in the Annunciation and in the dreams of Joseph to say this is the child's name and this is what it, and because the name is the identity of the child, the identity of the person. God with us, Yahweh is with us. And so when, when the, the Jesus says this then, he's not talking about just a name in, in our abstract sense of the word. He's talking about the reality of, the God, of God himself, that you baptize them into the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, which is, in this sense, a reconnection with our primordial created reality. And that is the image and the likeness of the divine. That is an interior relationality as being the essence of our human nature. And that without that, we cannot be human and uh, this was, of course, a, a tremendously difficult issue within, within the Protestant Reformation when, the, when Luther affirmed that the, the human beings um, lost all their original character and were simply depraved. And really, in the biblical world, that simply means they cease to be human. And, uh, and if they cease to be human... Well, then, you know, they should not be held to human standards or they should not be held to those standards which in some way, shape, or form um, identify us as human beings. But if that's the case, if that is the case, which of course it isn't, then what happens is, is that there is no moral law, there is no liturgical law, there's nothing. It's a free-for-all. Anyone can do whatever they want. All we have to do is look at uh, some of the fringes of, uh, of our modern uh, secular society, and we see people behaving in an anti-human way, in an unhuman way. And, um, and we say to ourselves, that is the consequence of sin. There is no way that the human person is as distorted as some of the ideologies of our contemporary age want to distort the human person without it being deeply embedded in sinfulness, in alienation from God, but in alienation from God, in alienation from ourselves. And that becomes one of the crises of the modern age. Marx talks about the alienation and so forth, but he misses the point of why it's there. He misses the point of what the essence of alienation is. And the essence of alienation is alienation from ourselves because ourselves are alienated from our source, our meaning, our purpose. And that is the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Consequent then, upon being drawn into the primordial relationship with God that it was intended for us from all time, 
and rehumanizing us in a way, restoring in a sense the depths of our own humanity, we then become capable of receiving the teachings of the Lord. And so he says, teach them to observe all the commands I gave you. And, uh, and, and, and so if in fact we, we can't understand and we cannot in some way, shape, or form um, grasp the depths of the meaning of our moral law, our interpersonal relation, all those kinds of things. Because if there is that barrier between ourselves and humanity itself, think, you know, now, there, there's no question that, that we don't have any, I mean, it, it's not reasonable to try and impose moralistic norms upon a pluralistic society. But it is, and we have to understand that the unbaptized or those who have rejected or obscured their baptism will not be able to receive or to comprehend the depths of, of the, the commandments of the Lord. So that <clears throat> it's not a pedagogical issue. It's an issue having to do with sin and forgiveness. It's a, it's a, it's a reality having to do with the reception or the non-reception of sacraments. It's the uh, it's the baptized and and the and the unbaptized or the baptized who have who have obliterated their baptism in a sense in their in the way they live their lives, who are incapable of receiving an insight into truth and an insight into uh, into the reality of who they are as persons. And without that sense of who they are as persons, they live with great, usually, confusion and anger and uh, fall prey to all sorts of peculiar ideologies that pour down upon us. And um, so this idea, first of all, of the Trinity, first of all, of the incarnation of Jesus, who some, even the those closest to him, sometimes stumble in, rela- in, in the presence of, um, the, the understanding that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me is a, is a statement of the Trinity on the part of Jesus, and then he articulates that in baptizing them actually into the person of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, which is where we were intended to be in, in the very beginning before the fall of humanity. And then once they have, once they have been connected to, to the living God, then they will be open and responsive to the commands that, that the Lord has given us. For that interprets our humanity for us. That structures our inner humanity in such a way that we nurture the gift instead of obscure or obliterate the gift. And so what happens then is that the teachings that come into the church are those which interpret for us the deepest meanings of our own humanity. They, of course, clarify things about the living God for us, but they basically tell us who we are, and they give us the formulae that for us to live is humanizing and liberating, and somehow or other is the source of peace, understanding, and hope. And then he says, and know that I am with you always, yes, even to the end of time. The church is here till the end of time, baptizing and teaching, and not only therefore serving the living God, 
but serving the deepest needs of humanity by interpreting humanity to itself that it might be wiser, that it might be deeper, that it might be more peaceful, that it might be in some ways more constructive in the world in which we live, to create a truly humane society, a human society, in which humanity can see within itself its origin and its destiny. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. So